welcome to Triad Warriors. I am your host, Annie Randall, and this is a safe space for real talk regarding all things Jesus, mental health, and of course, your relationship with food. Welcome back to the second season of Triad Warriors, the podcast more than food. On this season, we are talking about the many factors that influence and or cause disordered eating. On today's episode, I will be going solo and I will be talking about the several psychological influences that can affect the way in which we relate to food and our bodies. With that said, I do want to issue another trigger warning for this episode as there will be mention of eating disorders. If at any time you feel as though this information is too much for you, please turn off the episode or just pause it and come back later. Similar to the last few episodes, I do not think that this episode has as much potential to be a trigger to some of you than the other ones, particularly the ones where we will be discussing trauma, weight stigma, and other forms of oppression. However, as always, I want to place you in the driver's seat. You have the permission to leave at any time should the need arise because your mental health and overall well-being matters. Okay, now for a brief overview of what we will be diving into over the next couple of weeks. Over the next couple of of weeks, we will be diving into the psychological side of the equation. Now, this topic is vast and wide. I mean, eating disorders are classified as a mental health disorder. Therefore, many psychological factors are at play here. In fact, several psychopathologies can be identified when talking about eating disorders and underlying causes can range anywhere from low self-esteem to PTSD. Further, other co-occurring disorders, including things such as anxiety, depression, substance abuse, self-injury, suicidality, borderline personality disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and more can all be related to eating disorders. Next week, we will have Nadine Roy, a licensed professional counselor on the show, and she will be diving into the intersection of trauma, eating disorders, and substance use, specifically looking at the effects of religious and sexual trauma. Honestly, this is going to be an extremely fascinating episode, and I'm so excited for you all to listen and learn from Nadine. But in the meantime, we have some other important psychological factors to discuss. Today, we are going to be talking about the influences that include low self-esteem, high levels of shame, and poor body image, all of which are key risk factors in the development of eating disorders and disordered eating. Without further ado, let's hop right in, starting with self-esteem and how all of these factors connect with one another. By definition, self-esteem is a sense of confidence and or satisfaction in oneself as related to self-respect. According to Ada Goddery, who is a researcher of clinical neuroscience, self-esteem is the sense of uh, contentment and self-acceptance that results from a person's appraisal of their own worth, attractiveness, competence, and ability to satisfy their aspirations. Moreover, self-esteem is complex. It is multifaceted. Self-esteem refers to one's overall sense of personal value and worth. 
Self-esteem is an attitude, and this attitude can either be positive or negative. Essentially, we can have a positive attitude towards ourselves or a negative attitude towards ourselves. With that said, our self-esteem, or again, the attitudes that we have towards ourselves, are influenced by a variety of different factors, including personality, life experiences, age, health, thoughts, social circumstances, comparisons, so on and so forth. In addition, self-esteem is flexible. It is not fixed. Self-esteem can increase or decrease throughout our lifespan, depending on life circumstances and the effects that those circumstances have on our overall attitudes towards ourselves. The good news, self-esteem can be worked on and improved. However, before we get into that, let's define a few other concepts and let's discuss the ways in which low self-esteem is linked to eating disorders. First off, it's important to note that self-esteem is not self-confidence. They are two separate things, although there is some overlap. In fact, self-confidence is defined as a feeling of trust in one's own abilities, qualities, and judgment. Self-confidence is defined by the amount of trust that we have in ourselves and our ability to deal with challenges and to solve problems. Self-confidence is based on external measures of success and value. Self-esteem is not. Self-esteem is based on internal measures of worth and value. Thus, it is quite possible for someone to have a high self-confidence, but a low self-esteem. With that said, Dr. Nathaniel Brandon, who is another psychotherapist, argues that self-esteem is composed of two components, one of which includes self-efficacy. Now, self-efficacy is similar to self-confidence. However, self-efficacy is related to specific tasks and or situations, whereas self-confidence is non-specific. Essentially, self-confidence is related to one's overall confidence in her or himself, and self-efficacy is related to one's belief in her or himself as it pertains to specific tasks and or circumstances. As a component of self-esteem, self-efficacy refers to the belief that one has in her or his ability to think, learn, choose, and or make appropriate decisions. Self-efficacy refers to the amount of influence a person feels that she or he has over her or his environment. Consequently, self-efficacy plays into the attitudes that we have towards ourselves. Self-efficacy plays into our feelings of powerful or powerlessness, as well as our feelings of value, worth, and importance. But again, self-efficacy is not in itself self-esteem. And Dr. Brandon contends to this by asserting that self-respect is also a component of self-esteem. Now, I know we're going over a lot of, quote, self-definitions right now, but hang in with me for another second. Essentially, self-respect refers to one's confidence in her or his right to be happy and one's belief that she or he is worthy of achievement, success, friendship, respect, love, and fulfillment. Furthermore, self-respect is not contingent upon success. 
Self-respect simply refers to one's ability to like her or himself. Again, on its own, self-respect is not self-esteem. However, combined with self-efficacy, we can begin to gather a better picture of our self-esteem. For example, do you feel confident in making decisions? Are you able to clearly express and communicate your needs without fear or doubt? Do you believe that you are equal to everyone else, no better or worse? If you answered yes to these questions, then these are all examples of having a high self-esteem. Other examples of a high self-esteem can include being more likely to take positive risks and less likely to take negative risks, being more likely to resist negative peer pressure, feeling strong and able to cope with life's challenges, feeling resilient and able to bounce back after disappointment, being able to set and strive after your goals, feeling free to explore your creativity, and having an overall positive attitude about life. Those are all examples of high self-esteem. On the other hand, having a low self-esteem may look like being less likely to take positive risks and more likely to take negative risks. Being less likely to resist negative peer pressure, maybe you go along with the crowd, not feeling strong enough nor capable enough to cope with life's challenges, feeling unresilient or feeling unable to bounce back after disappointment, being less likely to set and strive after your goals, Goals, not feeling confident enough to explore your creativity, and just having a negative attitude about life overall. Basically, having a low self-esteem can be extremely disruptive in many areas of life, leading to relational problems, impaired academic and vocational performance, feelings of anxiety, stress and loneliness, substance abuse problems, and eating disorders, which is where our discussion for today begins. According to Gaudery, who I mentioned before, before, low self-esteem is both a risk factor and a source of maintenance for disordered eating behaviors. In fact, low self-esteem is linked to greater levels of impulsivity, perfectionism, anxiety, and self-harm, all of which are then linked to disordered eating. In addition, disordered eating behaviors are linked to increased feelings of hopelessness, self-hate, and shame. Thus, we have another chicken or the egg situation here. What came first, the low self-esteem or the eating disorder? Honestly, it's likely an interconnected web of the two. However, every individual is different and every individual's relationship with food is different as well. Every individual has a unique story and unique experiences, some of which can contribute to the etiology of eating disorders. So rather than getting into every potential aspect of self-esteem, I specifically want to home in on the concept of shame, which can have a profound impact on our daily lives, our self-esteem, and our eating behaviors. Some of you may be familiar with the work of Brene Brown. If not, she is a shame researcher, and she has done a lot of great work around the concepts of shame, guilt, vulnerability, self-compassion, empathy, and so on. She does not directly study eating disorders, but her work around shame can give us a better understanding of the role that shame plays in eating disorders. To start, a definition. 
According to Brene Brown, shame is a painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is intense and it is incapacitating. Shame results in a desire to hide oneself and one's deficiencies from the world. And shame increases when it is accompanied by secrecy, silence, and judgment. With that said, multiple studies have identified a link between high levels of shame, low self-esteem, and eating disorder behavior. In fact, feelings of shame can cause us to experience a perceived devaluation of ourselves, leading to a lowered self-esteem. Further, one study found that both current and recovered eating disorder women had significantly higher shame scores than the control groups, and of the 65 women interviewed in this study, 42% said they had not disclosed certain information about themselves and or their behaviors within treatment. This lack of self-disclosure was then linked to even higher levels of shame, which supports Brene's theory on secrecy and silence being ingredients for increasing levels of shame. This is important because in today's world, most of us experience intense pressures surrounding who and what we should be. Whether it be related to what we do or who we are, there is messaging from every which direction telling us that we are not good enough, beautiful enough, thin enough, strong enough, smart enough, talented enough, whatever enough, the list goes on and on. Further, experiences such as bullying, childhood trauma and neglect, toxic gender roles, rejection from others, and all of the isms can contribute to feelings of shame, feelings that we are inherently not enough, feelings that we are, quote, bad or, quote, disgusting or whatever it may be. And as a result, shame causes us to think and behave as though we are unworthy of love and respect. Shame may lead to social withdrawal, depression, compulsive and excessive behaviors, addictions, eating disorders, and more. Ultimately, shame draws us inward. It pulls us into the dark and it enslaves us to the flesh. With that said, eating disorders occur in the dark. They occur in the closet. And just because you do not see someone engaging in disordered behaviors, that does, mean, does not mean that they are not. Further, just because you have been able to mask potentially harmful behaviors as, quote, health, does not mean that they are not hurting you. We will talk about this more on next week's episode, but for now, know that there are often deep emotional and relational wounds at the root of an eating disorder. There is often a deeply felt sense of shame at the root of an eating disorder. Shame which can be characterized by three different categories, characterological, behavioral, and bodily. A quick word on each. Characterological shame, which includes the shame we feel around personal habits, interactions with others, personal identity, and personal ability, revolves around the shame that we feel about our perceived character flaws. Characterological shame is the shame that we feel about the parts of ourselves that are stable, global, and unchangeable. Essentially, when we experience characterological shame, we feel shame about who we are at our deepest core. We feel shame about the parts of ourselves that we cannot, quote, 
fix. Consequently, when we experience characterological shame, we can feel hopeless and we tend to retreat. In fact, characterological shame is associated with emotional suppression and maladaptive emotional regulation strategies. Strategies that may include binge eating, excessive exercise, restrictive eating, substance abuse, self-harm, and more. Evidently, feeling shame about who we are can impact us on a profound and deep level, causing us to feel unworthy of time, space, love, and nourishment. Characterological shame can result in an unhealthy relationship with not only ourselves, but food as well. Likewise, behavioral shame can have a profound impact on our relationship with food. Behavioral shame is the shame that we experience around what we do, which in turn produces shame about who we are. Now, behavioral shame is different than guilt. We experience guilt when we perceive that we did something wrong and consequently we feel discomfort. With that said, guilt can be adaptive and it can be helpful in some circumstances. For example, guilt may help you to apologize to your best friend for hurting her or his feelings. However, behavioral shame is not helpful. Similar to guilt, behavioral shame can occur when we do something wrong, but rather than feeling guilty about the wrongdoing, we feel shameful about who the wrongdoing makes us out to be. Furthermore, we can experience behavioral shame after saying something that we perceive to be, quote, stupid, or after we experience real or perceived failure in competitive situations. Essentially, behavioral shame occurs when we perceive that our behaviors, words, and actions define and disqualify. Behavioral shame occurs when we no longer believe that we are worthy of love or belonging due to our words, actions, and or failures. Consequently, behavioral shame can cause us to fall into a perpetual pattern of maladaptive behavior. I like to call this the judgment cycle. Basically, the judgment cycle is a cycle that we get sucked into when dealing with behavioral shame. It's the cycle that keeps us feeling as though we are unlovable and unworthy. The cycle that keeps us swinging along a pendulum of being good and being bad. It's not a fun or productive place to be, and here is why. The judgment cycle is made up of three components. Number one, labeling an experience. Number two, creating an absolute about your behaviors based on that experience. And number three, creating an absolute about yourself based on that behavior, and so on and so forth. An example of this experience could be the judgments you make about yourself when eating chocolate or insert some other taboo food to you. In this example, the cycle would play out like so. Number one, I am a failure because I ate way too much chocolate, labeling. Number two, I always do this. I always fail every time I try to eat healthy, absolute about behavior. And number three, I am such a failure. I should just eat more chocolate. 
absolute about self based on behavior. And then you repeat. This cycle repeats over and over again as your self-esteem continues to worsen and worsen over time. Perhaps maybe you start another diet in there, but as long as you are stuck in the judgment cycle, you continually come back to that place of, I am such a failure. I will never be good enough. I should just eat more chocolate. That sucks, right? That does not feel good. And I'm so sorry if you are currently struggling with this cycle. I have been there and it is very painful. However, I do have great news. You can break this cycle. You can find food freedom and you can move out of this judgmental posture. How? By shifting over to a posture of curiosity, which I will be talking about more here soon. But first, I want to talk about the last category of shame, bodily shame. Now, bodily shame is a particularly important form of shame when it comes to eating disorders as bodily shame is a known risk factor for the development of disordered eating behaviors. With that said, bodily shame consists of pretty much what it sounds like, feeling ashamed of your body or parts of your body. And given the fact that 40% of women and 30% of men experience body dissatisfaction, with some surveys even saying that 97% of women say or think that they dislike their bodies daily, I'm assuming that you have experienced some level of body shame within your lifespan. We can all relate that intense feeling that your body is wrong or flawed or in need of fixing. That suffocating thought that if I lose X more pounds or gain X more muscle, then I will be loved. Then I will be accepted. Body shame is widespread and invasive, and it is most certainly contributing to the rising rates of disordered eating. We will touch more on body image in the next season, so I do not want to go too far into that right now, but I do want to point out that body shame doesn't always have to do with our body weight or shape. In fact, in fact, bodily shame and body dissatisfaction can occur for a wide variety of reasons. Reasons that include a history of abuse, which we will talk about next week. In addition, feelings of shame can arise around our sexuality and our gender and much more. Basically, body shame is the result of anything that causes us to feel as though our bodies are damaged, unacceptable, and unlovable. Which let me just say right now, all of those things are lies. Your body is a good body and healing the relationship you have with your body can lead to profound healing in the relationship that you have with food. In fact, healing your relationship with your body and healing your relationship with food go hand in hand. In other words, you cannot stop listening to the food police if you are still listening to the body police. And oftentimes, rejecting the body police begins with overcoming bodily shame, which is where I want to begin to land with today's episode. We have covered a lot today. We talked about some of the psychological issues that can result in disordered eating behaviors and or a full-blown eating disorder, specifically focusing on the concepts of self-esteem and shame. Again, as I have mentioned before, our relationships with food and bodies are complex and not everything that I talked about in today's episode may have rung true for you. Thus, if you are struggling with food and or body image, but did not relate to anything I said in today's episode, then we have a lot of other things to cover this season. 
However, because shame is a universal emotion, I'm going to take a wild guess and assume that all of you have experienced shame in some form of a, or another throughout your lifespan. Perhaps the shame you have experienced has not been about your body or food, or perhaps it has. Regardless, what I am about to touch on will hopefully be helpful for anyone who has ever experienced shame. So what do we do with shame? Shame is such an invasive and overwhelming emotion, one which can seep into every sector of our lives, leaving us depressed, anxious, and lonely. Shame can result in a lowered self-esteem, and chronic feelings of shame can feel like a constant emotional and mental battle. So again, how do we overcome shame? Well, according to Brene Brown, the antidote for shame is vulnerability and empathy. In other words, to overcome shame, we need to step outside of ourselves and courageously share our experiences and feelings with a safe person. Emphasis on the safe, a person who can then engage in empathy, which ultimately allows us to realize that we are not alone. Furthermore, it's important that we engage in self-empathy. It is important that we release self-judgment and that we cultivate a greater sensitivity towards our own suffering, insecurities, and imperfections. Essentially, self-esteem is defined as the acknowledgement that you too deserve understanding and compassion, just like every other human being out there. And self-empathy requires a greater level of awareness and attunement with ourselves, which can be cultivated through the practice of curiosity. This is what I like to call the curiosity cycle. Similar to the judgment cycle, the curiosity cycle is made up of three parts. However, these parts are much more helpful. They are as follows. Number one, describing an experience. Number two, noticing patterns in behavior based on similar experiences. And number three, staying open to new information and responding with grace. See how much more helpful this cycle is? This is a cycle that lends to grace and forgiveness, one that seeks answers and responds. This is a cycle of mindfulness and awareness. Using our chocolate example from before, I want to show you how much more productive and helpful this cycle is. Here's how that scenario would play out. Number one, I ate two full chocolate bars and now I'm uncomfortable. My stomach hurts, I feel kind of nauseous, and I still feel stressed. Describing. Number two, when I get overly stressed, I tend to reach for chocolate and other sugary foods. I also tend to skip full meals when I'm stressed, which makes me more likely to overeat. Noticing patterns. Number three, I wonder what would happen if I tried eating regularly throughout the day and if I tried a breathing exercise when I feel stressed next time, staying open to new ideas. This is a much more helpful situation than the first scenario, right? In this scenario, you did not judge yourself for eating chocolate. Eating chocolate is totally fine. But instead, you described the situation and looked for answers as to what was happening inside of your body. 
The same cycle can be used as one of many tools in improving body image, ending binge eating, overcoming restriction, and responding to any other negative loops in your life. I have personally seen the positive effects of curiosity in my own life, and I have also seen it in the lives of my clients who have undergone similar journeys as you all are on. However, I do want to note that shame and other emotional or cognitive factors involved in disordered eating often go much deeper than simply simply practicing curiosity. And this is especially true for those whose thoughts and behaviors are beginning to interfere with their daily lives, their social lives, and their overall health and well-being. Ultimately, finding food freedom and making peace with your body often requires deep mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual healing. Thus, I would encourage you to reach out to a counselor, therapist, or other mental health professional. Nothing that I shared on this episode is a replacement for counseling, nutritional consultation, treatment, or medical advice. My goal is simply to provide education and hopefully bring some clarity to the challenges that you're facing in your everyday life. With that said, that is about all I have for today's episode. Tune back in next week for a discussion on trauma and disordered eating with Nadine Roy, licensed professional counselor. And I hope you have a great rest of your day, morning, evening, whenever you're listening to this. I am Annie Randall. This is Triad Warriors and food freedom starts here.